You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 46. I want to take a moment to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else that you might be listening to the show. And also ask that you share it out with your friends on social media and elsewhere and ask them to give it a listen, a subscribe, a rate, and review if they're so inclined. Okay, so the first item I have up on this week's episode Tamron recently announced a trio of compact prime lenses for Sony FE mount. The 24mm, 35mm, and 20mm f2.8s are all going to be released in the near future. Tamron has been on a hot streak with Sony lenses ever since they released the 28-75 f2.8, And even though that lens was released a year and a half ago, it can still be hard to find in stock at times. They followed up with the 17-28 f2.8, a small wide-angle lens that holds its own against the Sony 16-35 f2.8 G Master. Instead of going for a large, heavy, fast prime, Tamron took a different approach and went for small and affordable. While adding a few neat features like 1 to 2 macro capabilities, both the 24 and 35 are extremely light, weighing in at around 7.5 ounces. Not only are they light, but they're small too. At 2.5 inches, you can easily fit the lens in a coat pocket if you so desire. Despite the lightweight build, the primes are still weather sealed and dust and moisture resistant. The most appealing part of these Two primes, though, is going to be the price. At $349, these are some of the least expensive prime lenses available for the Sony FE mount. The only lenses that are smaller and less expensive are the Rokinon 24mm f2.8 and 35 2.8, which are around $249 and $299, respectively. The two big advantages that Tamron has on their product qual- are on their side are product quality consistency and their six-year warranty. And if you wanted to take a look, you'll see that in the images, along with this article on Petapixel, it shows both the Tamron and the Rokinon lenses side-by-side side for comparison to get an idea of the sizing of each company's lens offerings for the Sony FE mount. Even at a price point of just $350, you still get quality LD and GM elements to reduce chronomatic aberrations. Tamron's BBAR coating to reduce ghosting and flares and sharpness throughout the frame. The AF is powered by Tamron's OSD optimized silent drive motor for quick, quiet, and fast autofocus. The front element on the lenses moves in and out while focusing, but it stays within the lens. For convenience, all of Tamron's FE lenses so far have a 67mm filter thread, making sharing filters a possibility without having to use stepping rings, which is nice for a lot of photographers. I know it would definitely be a, a nice thing to have on my lenses if they all took the same size filters. Despite their small size, the Tamron 24 and 35 primes have quality glass and fast AF performance using a or I detect AF lock to track a person 
the tracking kept up just like it would on a Sony branded lens. When getting nearer the minimum focusing distance, the AF did tend to hunt or pulse a little bit if light levels are somewhat low, but it would eventually acquire focus after a second or two. Anything past a foot focused fine and would keep focus on a moving subject. While the 35mm is closer, closer to a normal focal length and doesn't show much distortion, the 24mm does have some noticeable distortion if the correction features are turned off in camera, but it's something that should easily be able to be corrected in Lightroom when post-processing. Vignetting isn't bad, with a little bit present when shooting wide open, once stopped down to f5.6, it is all but gone. The 24mm features a typical lens hood design, while the 35 gets a cap-style lens hood with a rectangular opening. A benefit of this design is that you can attach a filter to the front of the hood and quickly take it off just by removing the lens hood. The hood also fits on the 24, but you get noticeable vignetting in the corners. While many professionals may be looking for primes that are f1.4 or even f1.2, there is a large percentage of Sony users who are casual shooters, hobbyists, and pros on a budget. These lenses feel right at home on a full-frame A7 series camera as they do on a smaller A6 series camera. For street photographers or photographers who like to travel light, these lenses are definitely worth taking a look at. Pairing one of these lenses with an A7 III results in a com combined weight of just under 2 pounds. The class-leading macro capabilities of these lenses also allow for a new level of creative shooting with the 24 and 35mm focal lengths. The 24 and 35mm primes will start shipping shortly, and you can pre-order them now. I will share the link to the pre-order site in the show notes for this episode should you be a Sony shooter that's interested in checking out these new Tamron Primes. Now, this is extremely exciting news. Uh, I'm not personally a Sony shooter, but I have a lot of friends that shoot Sony, and Tamron has been making some seriously quality lenses for quite a while now. And with their six-year warranty, as mentioned earlier in this article, it's kind of hard to beat that. With the lightweight, the fast capabilities, the low price tag, and the six-year warranty, you'd be hard-pressed to pass on these lenses and go with something much heavier and much more expensive, especially when you're getting a decent at wide aperture at f2.8. That's nothing to be sneezed at. Now, I like uh, they mentioned in the article, some pros like to have f1.4 or 1.2. Me, personally, I think 2.8 is plenty wide enough for low-light performance. Most of the time, if you're going to buy an f1.4 or 1.2 lens, you're not going to shoot it wide open at 1.4 or 1.2 anyways. You're going to, chances are you're going to stop it down to f2 or 2.8 and uh, get the best performance out of those lenses. Most of them, when they're ex all the way wide open, are going to have issues as far as vignetting and softness and stuff like that. So this is definitely some exciting news for Sony E-mount shooters, and I have a feeling that those lenses are going to sell like hotcakes. Just my opinion. All right, the next item I wanted to touch on this week, Adobe reveals the major updates coming soon to Photoshop on iPad. When Adobe released the first full version of Photoshop for iPad, the company reassured us that updates to this limited first version will be impactful and frequent. Today, Adobe followed up on that promise by revealing some of the major updates that will be coming to the app in the coming months. The release of Photoshop 
Photoshop on the iPad hasn't gone quite as smoothly as Adobe probably hoped with early reviews slamming the app for being a severely limited application. But if you're worried that Adobe was lying about that frequent, quote-unquote, frequent update schedule, the brand wants you to know it means business. And a blog post published minutes ago, and this is earlier today, November 21st, Photoshop product manager Pam Clark is giving users a glimpse into what's to come and how your input is reflected in our planning process, end quote. The first major feature to be added in 2019 will be the AI-powered select subject tool that was first previewed for the desktop version of the app back in 2017. Then before the year is out, cloud documents will also become faster than ever before, allowing you to sync files between iPad and desktop versions of Photoshop seamlessly without bogging down your connection by only saving changes that you've made. Quote, if you change just one pixel, writes Clark, only that pixel syncs to the cloud. End quote. That's it for 2019, which is almost over anyways, but Adobe promises to add much more in the first half of 2020. The Refine Edge brush and the Curves adjustment layer will both be making their debut on the iPad version, both major enhancements for photo editors, while other adjustment layers like Levels will see improvements in functionality. The team also promised to, quote, begin to deliver integration of Lightroom and Photoshop workflows on the iPad, making it easier to go from editing a raw image in Lightroom to making major adjustments in Photoshop without leaving your iPad. Oh, they'll also be adding brush sensitivity and canvas rotation, but those are such absurd emissions from version 1 that we can't really call them new features. To read about all of these updates in slightly more detail, head over to the Adobe blog and don't be afraid to share your thoughts with Adobe while you're there. All of these planned improvements, writes Clark, are being prioritized in response to feedback from the community. So if you have further feature requests, she encourages you to join in and offer feedback through this link. And I will share the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, to be honest, I hadn't realized that Adobe had finally released Photoshop for the iPad. The last time I checked a few weeks back, it still hadn't been released yet. At least I couldn't find it in the App Store when I did a search for Photoshop. So it is great that it's out, but from the sounds of it, I'm not going to get too excited about it yet because it's extremely limited as far as what you can do with it at this time. So I'll probably wait a little while before I even bother to download it on my iPad Pro to give it a shot with the Apple Pencil version 2. Okay, the next item I wanted to talk about in this week's episode, Sigma to address their RF mount plans in early 2020. Now, this is coming from Canon Rumors as of yesterday at 9.30 a.m. They have been told that Sigma is actively working on an RF mount lens roadmap and will announce their plans sometime in early 2020, we suspect an announcement ahead of CP Plus in February would be the ideal time to do so. Apparently, distributors have received some early information about Sigma's plans, but our source on this didn't want to divulge any more information. It would be great for the EOS R system as Sigma gets on board early with some compelling lenses. And I can't agree more. Sigma has had some fantastic glass for quite a few years now, especially in their art series lenses. I only currently own one myself, and that's the 12-24R. to 24R. 
art lens uh, with the f4 aperture, but it is a fantastic lens. The only downside is it's extremely heavy, like the earlier version of that lens that I had numerous years ago. But if they're going to come out with some compelling RF mount art lenses for considerably better pricing than Canon, which is pretty much a given that they'll be cheaper than Canon, I will definitely be intrigued by that because as I've said in numerous episodes in the past, Canon seems to be all over the map as far as their pricing for RF mount lenses. Some of them they're pricing astronomically high, like $3,000 for a 2.8 lens, uh, or even an F1.2 lens or a 1.4 lens is just ridiculous when the EF cousin to that lens was a fraction of the price. And they were still not cheap lenses. I mean, don't get me wrong, the, the EFL glass was never cheap glass as far as cost. But some of the RFL lenses that are comparable to their, as far as aperture, you know, 1.2s, 1.4s, when compared to their EF cousins, are two and three times the price, which to me is just ridiculous. There's no way I'm looking to spend $3,000 for a 70 to 200 f2.8 telephoto lens when my current EF version, Mark II, was less than $2,000. I mean, it's just crazy to spend $3,000 on just to get the RF version of that lens. I'm just going to stick with the one I have now and continue to use the control ring adapter for EF to RF on it. And that's my plan for now. So I'll definitely be intrigued to see if Sigma does announce some new RF mount lenses in early 2020. Hopefully they do. Hopefully they come out with some compelling lenses. Maybe if they come out with a high quality art version 70 to 200 2.8 for a reasonable price i may just go ahead and snatch up their version instead of canon's and just say to heck with canon's rf 70 to 200 altogether because i'm not crazy about spending three thousand dollars for a 70 to 200 lens when my mark ii ef version of the lens still makes amazing images at a fraction of the price but we'll have to wait and see exactly what sigma does announce in the beginning of 2020. Need a pancake? Well, now you can say big on Canon's stubby lenses. Black Friday pricing for Canon lenses from authorized dealers is now live, and we've noticed big discounts on Canon's two pancake lenses for the EF and EFS mount. The Canon EFS 24 F2.8 STM regular price $149 is on sale for Black Friday for $99. And the Canon EF 40mm f2.8 STM pancake lens, regular price $199, is on sale for $129. So you can save some serious money on either one of these stubby little pancake lenses. You can also save up to $400 for Black Friday on lots of other Canon lenses at Adorama, and you can check out the link, which I'll post in the show notes, to find all of the other deals that Adorama is going to have for Black Friday. Now, switching gears in the world of Nikon, Nikon Z6 and Z7 firmware update version 2.10 has been released as of yesterday. Nikon released the updated firmware for the Z6 and Z7 camera bodies, which added support for optical VR for Nikkor Z DX16-50 f35-63 VR and the Nikkor Z DX50-250 f4.5-6.3 VR Z-mount lenses. 
Note that attaching these lenses disables the mechanical shutter option for custom settings D5, shutter type, in group D, shooting slash display of the custom setting menu, leaving a choice of auto and electronic front curtain shutter options only. ISO sensitivity can now be adjusted using the lens control ring, and ISO sensitivity has been added to the options available for custom setting F2, custom control assignment, lens control ring, and group F controls of the custom setting menu. As of November 14, 2019, the aperture display in the lens info panel for Nikkor Z24-70 2.8S and the Nikkor Z 58mm F095S knock lenses shows both the current aperture and adjacent aperture values in modes A and M. Also added, when on, when on was selected for auto ISO sensitivity control and an option that does not include slow sync was selected for flash mode, shutter speed was formerly restricted to values between those chosen for custom settings E1 flash sync speed and E2 flash shutter speed. But this has now been changed to match the behavior of digital SLR cameras with the result that the minimum shutter speed now corresponds to the values selected for auto ISO sensitivity control under minimum shutter speed. This update also fixed an issue that in extremely rare cases resulted in the camera failing to correctly record movies with 1920 by 1080 120 pre-selected for frame size and frame rate. This update also fixed an issue that occasionally resulted in quote-unquote noise in the form of white lines at the bottom of the display when the electronic viewfinder was on. It also addresses an issue that in rare cases resulted in quote-unquote noise in the form of fine horizontal lines appearing throughout the frame in movies and the live view display. The update also fixed errors in the UTC time zones for the following three cities in the time zone and date time zone display in the setup menu. Caracas was minus 430 is now minus 4. Casablanca was 00, zero is now plus 1 and Ankara was plus two, is now plus three. And additionally, fixed an issue that resulted in an incorrect date of creation being displayed in the Windows 10 Properties dialog for movies and time-lapse movies created with the camera, as well as copies created with camera movie editing controls. Now for the Nikon Z6, those were the changes or updates for the Z7. For the Z6, they're all pretty much the same all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, I don't see any major differences, so no need to repeat all of these. If you want to download the latest version of the Z6 and Z7 firmware update, I will share a link to this article in the show notes for this episode so that you can go download the latest version for yourself and get it installed on your Z6 or Z7 body. Another item of Nikon news this week, Nikon registered a new camera under the codename N1823. The new camera was registered in Russia under the codename N1823, equipped with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, obviously. It is not clear yet if the N1823 will be mirrorless DSLR or compact camera, and the same registration has also shown up on the Taiwan NCC. The battery is ENEL20A for Nikon V3, and the AC adapter is EH-73P for Coolpix cameras. 
and the USB cable is UC-E21. The camera is compatible with Speedlight's SB-500 stereo microphone ME-1 and remote controller MC-DC2. So it'll be interesting to find out down the road what exactly this new camera turns out to be. Will it be a mirrorless, a DSLR, or a compact system camera? Only time will tell. But it is interesting. Now, the last bit of Nikon news I have for this week. There's a rumor Nikon is supposedly killing some of their sport optic product lines. As of yesterday, this rumor started circulating. It's coming from vendors. Nikon is supposedly slashing production of some of their sport optics product lines. Apparently, they're being told that all scopes and red dots are discontinued. We cannot confirm this rumor at this time. We'll have to wait and see if Nikon will make a, an official announcement via an official press release or not. But these are the rumors that are currently circulating among vendors that Nikon is definitely going to be cutting their sport optics product lines. Is this an indication that Nikon is hemorrhaging money? They're losing in battle, you know, a mirrorless battle against Sony and Canon? and other big camera manufacturers, it's hard to tell. I mean, it, that's one possibility because Nikon does not have nearly as deep pockets as either Canon or Sony when it comes to research and development because their portfolio of products isn't quite as diverse as both Sony and Canon. So is this a, a sign of the times that Nikon could be falling by the wayside? They're, are they hemorrhaging cash? Are they on the verge of becoming obsolete, going the way of the dodo bird or the dinosaur. I guess only time will tell. We'll have to wait and see. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention in this week's episode, I did recently finally receive my Fujifilm GFX 50R medium format mirrorless with the 50 millimeter Fujidon lens. And I must say that I love this camera's body and lens setup. I am looking to get the 17mm, I think it's pronounced Laowa, uh, F4 landscape lens because I didn't want to spend $2,100 on the Fujinon 23mm uh, lens, which would be about an 18mm equivalent. Instead, I'm going to go with the Laowa manual-only lens. doesn't have any optics, but I don't care about that. It's got an aperture ring and it's got a focus ring. That's all that matters, and it's native G mount. And it's less than half the price of the 23mm Fujinon lens. So I think that's definitely the route I'm going to go for my landscape work. Because I do want to start using my medium format camera now that I have one for my Forgotten Pieces of Georgia project. Uh, where I'm traveling to all 159 counties in Georgia to shoot abandoned and dilapidated commercial buildings, whether they're small business buildings, former manufacturing buildings, factories, whatever the case may be. I've been working on this project for a little while now, and I really was excited at the idea of finally having a medium format camera that I could use to take these images and get the maximum amount of detail for my photos. So we will see how things go. I'm planning on getting the Laowa 17mm, which is the full-frame equivalent of 13.5mm, so extremely wide, uh, much wider than the Fujinon 23mm lens, and again, for less than half the price. So that is the route I will be going for my Fujifilm GFX 50R. I will give you more information on my thoughts on that lens once I pick it up, 
and take it out and put it through its paces. But so far, I really love the 50 millimeter lens that I got with the camera body. I'm quite happy with the performance I get from that. Now, of course, down the road, I'll probably add one or two other lenses to my GFX 50R. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, for now, I can get by with a decent portrait and landscape lens. That's all I really, really need. I'm not planning to do any telephoto shooting with the the GFX 50R. I just don't personally think that uh, medium format cameras are really intended to be used for telephoto shooting. And of course, they're not made for sports. That's not why you buy a medium format. They're not the fastest cameras in the world as far as frames per second count. But again, that's not why you buy one. You buy one to get maximum detail. So you'll have to continue to listen to the show each week, and I will be sure to share more on my feelings on this new acquisition, this new body, and, and the accompanying lenses. So far, I'm very pleased with it, and I want to thank the good folks at Adorama for helping me make that purchase possible by them purchasing my three old our older Canon DSLRs. They weren't extremely old. I had a 1DX Mark II, a 6D Mark II, and the 5DSR. And I sold those to Adorama and bought the GFX 50R with the 50mm lens. All right, I am going to go ahead and wrap up episode 46 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes, Pandora, Radio.com, and anywhere else you might be listening to this show. And I will see you all again next week for episode 47. <laughs>